It's been a few months since we last spoke with James LaFond, but in the meantime, the world has gone from civilized to question mark seemingly overnight, and James has reemerged from his time spent at West writing and training to return to the imperial auspices of the East Coast to connect with old friends and observe the corona clampdown up close. Along the way, James has written a treatise on the parallels between Red and Blue State America and the ancient rivalries between the Greek empires of Athens and Sparta during the Peloponnesian War and the ramifications for continued stratification of American society between the elite and the rest of us. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Tonight we have a very special guest, a longtime friend of the show, James LaFond, as well as a full house. Uh, James, how have you been doing? I've been doing great. I'm loving the shamdemic. So uh, can we ask if you think it is real or not, or do you want to have no comments on this stuff? Oh, I actually, uh, four hours ago, a friend of mine died of it. Uh, They they actually tested him positive at the hospital, Uh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, he's 10 years older than me. He had kidney cancer. He had a history of heart issues. Uh, He got admitted. He got tested. They found out he had it. And he didn't go to the best hospital. There's some really shitty hospitals in Baltimore City. And the worst thing about it is the kind of mistreatment that you get in some of these urban hospitals. It's really important to have a family member there. Uh, so uh, his, I used to work with Mike, and I've dated his younger sister for 10 years, 11 years now. And... Their father died when she was four, so Mike and his older brother were basically like her dad. And when his older brother had a stroke and was in the nursing home, she used to go in there and uh, threaten to beat up the black girls if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, feed him, stop stealing his stuff, and so on. So the type of low-level staff you have in these urban hospitals, they'll actually prey on the patients. And... Once Mike goes in, none of his family is allowed to come in. Joanne's not allowed to go in there and, uh, you know, and t- and make sure he's on a heart monitor. He had a history of heart problems. Uh, uh, she talked to him two hours before he died, and he had passed out earlier. He was feeling a lot better. They were talking about releasing him. The doctor said that the only reason why he had not died like most of the men in his age group and condition was because he was already taking this like anti-malarial drug for some other problem he had, like his kidney problem, and then he didn't smoke cigarettes. And he was strong. He was a big Polak. And, uh, but he had a little bit of a problem earlier today. And then um, uh, 
she told him, she said, well, of course, she's not there. No family is allowed to be in there to make sure you get the right care. And the type of people you're dealing with don't want to care for you, generally speaking. Uh, and she's worried because there's an incentive for him to die. The hospital will get reimbursed extra money if they have a COVID casualty. So uh, she said, well, have them run some tests on you and make sure you're on a heart monitor. And he's like, well, I'm not on a heart monitor. He, he knows what one is. He's, uh, he had a mild heart attack before a few years ago. So uh, his wife gets a phone call two hours after uh, she gets off the phone with him. And they say, well, your husband has just died of cardiac arrest. She's not allowed to go in and identify the body. Uh, they don't even know if they're going to be able to make arrangements for the funeral home. And... You know, it's all a big mystery. And the whole time, his three sisters who wanted to be in there helping out, the hospital saying, no, you can't bring your own face mask. No, you can't come in. You you know, so she's really upset that her brother that basically raised her when, you know, he was 16 and his 18-year-old brother was earning the money for the family. He was taking care of the younger kids and she was four. That's her brother. He just had to die alone. He spent eight days in the hospital alone. Wow. Wasn't allowed to have his wife or sisters there. Uh, so that's the only person I know that's been hospitalized for this. And I know, you know, a lot more people than a normal person knows. And, uh, you know, the, uh, it's, you know, the, I'm sure you guys all know that the way this thing's been handled is like really bizarre and unprecedented for what it is. Uh, you know, but, um, you know, so he seems to be an actual, you know, diagnosed case of, uh, the real deal. Um, yeah, we, I think we think it, it is something, but the reaction is what's very suspicious, and the complete clampdown is doing a lot of damage to a lot of people's lives economically, if not uh, long-term in terms of the privacy and, and freedoms that we're somewhat used to, even though they have been eroded set somewhat consistently over the past you know, 70, 100 years or so. It depends on where you put the, the timeline, but it's... Um, that's where people are, I think, really speculating, and I, and it, what it's what concerns me is about what it's, might happen. Going yeah, forward. it's it's bizarre. I don't trust the numbers coming out of New York. I wouldn't no. put it past them just to like kill people or let them die and blame it on this shit and get a kickback from the federal government. There have I mean, been countless man on the street videos of people going, you know, who live in New York. I mean, this is not some you know random journalist. This is somebody who knows the city, and they're walking around with their phone. And they're live streaming and the people are just acting, you know, like there's obviously less traffic, there's less people, but there's no like sirens in the background. The, the city is not on fire. And the, this big uh, well, mercy ship they sent in, it's not even being used. I mean, I, I don't know what's well, going on. Yeah, I mean, the the intention when they sent the ship was that, uh, well, I guess the the idea was that the sort of regular hospital system was going to be so saturated right. with COVID cases that they needed a segregated facility to send people with the normal, you know, car accidents, heart attacks, strokes, broken legs. You know, my, my toddler has a 105 fever, that, that sort of thing. That was not COVID. And, uh, of course, you don't want to put them in the same facility because right. that's how you start a, a really severe epidemic. And so, you know, a, a hospital ship that's used to dealing with uh, trauma cases in sort of the normal 
uh, background uh, background radiation of disease that you get from a military population, that's a perfect fit for dealing with the sort of background uh, the background trauma and uh, kind of everyday health issues of a major city. And you know, every like honestly, I don't look at the, the coronavirus fatalities because I don't believe that you can do actual attribution at this point the tests are all over the place the uh there's tons of people that are just dying in their apartments what i do believe in is the sort of aggregate uh death rate i think that's the most reliable yeah set of statistics that you can get yeah for new york apparently it doubled over last year which yeah i mean means something right somebody's something's killing them so these corpses are coming from somewhere yeah and you know, you can talk about, okay, the death rate doubled, and that is dramatic, and that does show up in the numbers. But it's like, okay, contemplate before this whole thing became a phenomenon. Contemplate in your social circle how many people knew personally somebody that died. Like, not of anything, but just somebody that died in the preceding six months. And, like, there's a lot of people for whom the answer is, well, nobody. Like, you know, my relatives, you know, got a grandma who's, like, 80-something and she'll die at some point. But, you know, none of my friends have been in car crashes. Like, none of my relatives have had heart attacks. Like, the the amount of sort of aggregate death is actually low enough that if you take it and double it, that's still outside of a lot of people's personal social experiences Mm -hmm. so you know i i think it's totally compatible to say that this is a like this is clearly something that's having an effect the incidence is so erratic and like the the epidemiology of this is just so bizarre where you have uh, so many people that are testing positive through like fairly reliable tests now that are evidently completely asymptomatic. Like, you know, according to this randomized, uh, this randomized testing regime they had in New York, 25% of the fucking city has had coronavirus and passed. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, 0.25% of the city has not died. So it's, it's, like the whole thing makes very little sense, but what like makes very little sense in as far as you're going to determine kind of the future course of events of events from a purely biological standpoint. But yeah, what we do see that, is oh, sorry. Sorry. well, I, no, I was, like every you do see every petty local tyrant like when you when you don't have anything effective to do, you do something ineffective if you had something effective to do then you would be focused on doing that and you'd be judged according to whether or not that worked this is called security theater by the way yeah when you you have nothing to do you're like uh fresh air and sunshine let's let's ban fresh air and sunshine both of which are very good for your immune system by the way yeah like let let's let's ban like getting out of your gigantic closed circulation thousand apartment death trap on the island of Manhattan for an hour. Like, no, like go, go to Walmart. Like, no, you, you, you like you like there 
on the beach, 60 yards from anyone, go to Walmart. You'll be happy to, to hear you. where I live. People were having none of that, and there was a ton of people on the river uh, today. I saw families, people just God, enjoying God themselves again. In, in your area. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, I went for a walk. Maximum amount of uh, of freedom mm-hmm. in places where everyone is free to do their own thing. Yeah. I went for a walk today in uh, my kind of suburban area, and there were a lot of people out and about, kids playing at the park. People had torn down the caution tape that the bureaucrat <laughs> put up around the lake. Nice, dude. Torn, literally, like, ripped it off, and it was just lying there on the ground. There were kids on the play equipment, and a lot of people didn't have masks on. We're just kind of walking around, and, like, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, people, I think people don't care, and I would suspect Especially that I, now that the weather is nice. Yeah, people don't care. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, the fellow that I uh, you know, talked about that, uh, that just passed away today, that hospital is known for killing people, okay? Uh, so it may very well be just the rules that prevented his female family members from making sure he got the right care. might have been what did him in. Yeah. You know, you're never going to be able to know. They're probably not even going to do an, uh, an autopsy. Another guy that I worked with named John was killed in that same hospital by a catheter that was just put in wrong and it pierced his bowel and he, he died of septicemia. And it was, he was just going, he was, he was going in for something really basic to do his urinary tract or something like that. Yeah. And he kills for the catheter. So this is the hospital you're talking about. And once he goes in there and he gets hit with that diagnosis, nobody's allowed to see him. Nobody's allowed to make sure that any of his problem, and it's a substandard hospital, a better hospital right up the road. I know a nurse that works there. Uh, this is a, she's in a nightmare situation. She's in an ICU that got converted to a COVID unit. And uh, they're, I've talked to people that work in five different hospitals and none of these people could get tested. The doctors and nurses are not even permitted to get a test for this thing by the hospital administration. Um, I talked to a nurse out in Portland, two of her coworkers had a contract to go to New York to help with their, you know, Cordova virus epidemic or whatever you want to call it out there. Those contracts got canceled. They just said they, two weeks ago, said, ah, don't come. No, we don't need you anymore. Uh, there's, uh, you know, it, it's just the uh, the information I'm getting from people that work in different uh, hospital settings is that the hospital's pretty empty. Uh, they're thinking about furloughing us. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, uh, the one doctor told me, so pr- probably a third of the people that you know have already had this thing. And he said that you're going to, he said, you're never going to be able to know. They're never going to, determine how many people have had it, but he said you're probably going to find out that it's less deadly than the flu. Well, not if Bill Gates has his way. I mean, he's working uh, all uh, of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's resources towards uh, quote-unquote solving the coronavirus case, and one of his solutions is to have people effectively chipped and to tell people if they've been uh, tested and or vaccinated. And I will, uh, I will be doing my best to avoid that. I'll just say yeah, that. Not yeah, I, would, I would say to everyone listening, do whatever you can to not take their advice. Like there is nothing good that is going to come from whatever yeah. Bill Gates, the World Health Organization, the UN, and 
people like Fauci recommending you to do, do the opposite of it. Because well, and, and people, both, so wanna, there's a temptation by some people to act like these actors are all on the same team. Right. And that's just simply not the case. Like no, a lot of this idiotic. predation is clearly opportunistic. Like the the World Health Organization clearly has no fucking idea what's going on, except for in as much as they are told what to say is going on. Do you on, know the head of the is, WHO did not even have a medical degree? Yeah, well, and and to be fair, like in that position, you do not want a medical degree, and you certainly do not want any sort of a background in public health. Like, it, like, talk to somebody who has their master's in public health, which is easy. Like, if you want to do this experiment, like, hit up LinkedIn, yeah. search for master's in public health. That's different than a medical degree, though. That, that's, yeah, I, think I, it, I uh, know. It, it, it is yeah. different. But, like, honestly, doctors are just walking flowcharts. Yeah. The, like, they are innumerate. They cannot do math. They definitely cannot do statistics. And if you talk to somebody with a public health background, it's actually worse because not only can they not do math, they actually set up a entire system of ethics to prevent themselves from doing math right. because math is not ethical. If you can do a controlled experiment, that's not ethical. <laughs> well, they can't do science is what you're that's saying. Right. Yeah, that's not right. only can they not do science, like they, they cannot like reason from the evidence presented. Like it, it's the it's the double bind. You can't reason from the evidence presented to you by the world around you because that's not a controlled experiment. And you can't do a controlled experiment because controlled experiments are unethical. Because what if the control be right and that's better for the patient yeah, be, slash what if the treatment is better and you didn't <laughs> give it to the control? Both of those are just, you know, that's neither of those is ethical. So you just do neither. And so, like, you're left with, like, you know, whatever conception of, like, vague inferences you can make about whatever makes your gina tingle, which is ultimately what health boils down to. It's not, like, ensuring health in any sort of utilitarian sense or like mechanistic provable sense it's well how can we provide the best treatments yeah i think one of the better things that has come out of this is seeing uh the exposure of the the nurse for what that person really is on tiktok uh if anybody has not <laughs> lost the confidence in the medical system i think you just all you have to do is spend about five seconds on tiktok watching the latest nurse video of how clownish these uh these unserious people are and some of them apparently are, are, are murdering people in hospitals well they belong to that special category of american life that you know the cops belong to as well as several others where the more mistakes you make the more money that you need obviously to correct these mistakes. yeah where's cancer I, cure I have, I have how many like trillions major, have gone into this i have like a major sympathy for nurses because like they're they're put in a bad situation and uh, the the thing that Hans posted, I'm not sure if you posted that link uh, publicly, but you you have to kind of put on your 115 IQ gang filter mm -hmm. to uh, perceive from her very disjointed narrative that she's just put in a impossible situation where yeah, so they're for, told... for for context for what Pank is talking about. I uh, was sent a video by someone, uh, which I think has been doing the rounds, and it is a um, 
a nurse who is not on the front line, but who has contacts, other nurses who have actually gone to the front line in places like New York City and have uh, told her repeatedly and are afraid to speak out on this issue, but have told her repeatedly that they are um, basically giving the least possible care to uh, patients. They are um, flat out unqualified. Many of them are scared to actually perform work. So it's apparent that many of these nurses actually never really thought that they would be put in this position. And they are put being put up in hotels in New York City by FEMA, allegedly. And FEMA is footing the bill for these people to travel out there and um, and stay in a hotel. And many of them, once they get there, realize like, oh, this is the real shit. And I might actually have to do some medical work. And they are absconding their responsibilities. They're doing the least amount possible. Um, in most situations, they're refusing to administer sort of commonplace medications and ther uh, therapies and methods that are used in respiratory distress or just general respiratory illness or flu-like symptoms. And instead, they basically go to every single person and offer them, um, you can get trached, we can intubate you, and we can forcibly intubate you and put you on a ventilator. We can trach you, which means cut a hole in your throat, or we can give you some basic medication and hope, you know, you beat it. And then they basically just let them sit there and wither and die without any other help. Um, and, you know, I, I, I remember when I was in community college, I was in community college for a spell, so I'd could transfer, wouldn't have to pay for a lot of credits. The community college I was at had a big nursing program. And several of these women um, were definitely getting nursing, you know, credits in classes for about 40 bucks a credit at this small community college I went to. And these are some of the dumbest people you can imagine. These are dumb people who are uh, uncouth, uncaring, very, very vapid, um, predominantly women in their 20s who don't have any other career options and were told at some point that being a dental hygienist or a nurse is a good career path. Um, and they are used to these situations where they, you know, they set a broken bone, they just make a splint, they administer a shot maybe. At most, they'll do sort of background grunt work in a hospital for 40 years and they're comfortable with that. But now they're being asked to actually help out in a time of crisis, and they have no idea what to do. They're scared. They are giving the least amount of treatment possible, and they're allowing doctors and ER physicians to run around cutting people's throats open because the nurses are absconding their duties so frequently that um, patients descend rapidly to this point where that's the only option viable. And typically, once you get your throat cut open or you have a giant metal tube shoved down your esophagus, you're in pretty bad shape. And um, if you use a high pressure uh, single ventilation method, which means that all you're doing is forcibly choking up the lungs and then forcing them to exhale, um, you're going to do permanent lung damage and you're probably going to make the patient worse. And you could, this could lead to bacterial infection. So. That would most likely explain why great numbers of people are, are, are dying or are dead. And I would say on top of that, for those of you who are not aware, um, the healthcare industry in this country killed well over 100,000 people just last year in hospital-borne infections, in medical malpractice, in surgical errors, in nurse errors, in ER errors, in pediatric errors. 
there were well over, probably, you know, that we know of, well over 100,000. I, I would suspect closer to 200,000. Yeah, I mean, it's killed. in the top 10 leading causes of yeah, death people, in the country. People killed. And that's, like just, that's just, hold on. That's, that's the just, third leading cause of death in the country. Well, abortion's yeah, number so one. That's, that's just direct attribution. And if you look at indirect attribution, you look at uh, mistakes that are more difficult to quantify, mistakes that are more difficult to qualify, um, improper diagnoses, improper distribution of medication. Um, you know, you can't always directly attribute those. But if you look at those reported instances or, um, I'm sorry, incidents, or if you look at um, some of the literature on this or some of the horror stories people have of going to hospitals or, or uh, urgent cares or so on, um, you know, it's, it's probably closer to several hundred thousand people every year, uh, increasingly every year. Get killed by that's inadequate awesome. healthcare professionals. That hospital yeah. that uh, my my friend died at today, and that my former coworker died at ten years ago. Uh, yesterday, I talked to an ICU nurse who got out of that hospital. She couldn't stay in that hospital because she saw uh, care that uh, uh, that she thought was terrible being administered, and uh, she wouldn't have anything to do with it. She's working at the hospital that Mike's family wished he could have got into uh, when, you know, when he was sick last week. Uh, she told me yesterday that when she got her break and she's working 40-hour shifts, Okay. Uh, every six hours, she gets to take a 20 minute break and she's supervising four nurses in a converted IC unit that aren't ICU nurses. And she said they're pretty much worthless. And they were actually, she came back from her break and these nurses are sitting in the area while the alarms are going off on a couple of the patients who have run low just on their IV fluids, just on basic stuff. But she said with the, these patients that are just sick, the basic stuff is very important. You know, uh, you don't want to just screw up on that. And these people were just sitting there. It sounded like a bunch of guys in the supermarket trying to decide who wasn't going to put up the last case of freight, you know, because they're lazy. It really just sounded like a nightmare. I'll, I will do everything I can to stay out of a hospital after talking to her. But, and my, my doctor told me he's really seriously considering retiring, uh, just because, uh, he really doesn't like what's happening with medicine. He doesn't like being associated with it. The, the only reason why he doesn't want to retire is that, you know, he's, he acts as the, the doctor for his friends and family. So, well, yeah, do, do you think he would say it's gotten is, worse? That, that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out. Because if it was always this bad, then you know, he, well, systemically, there's something wrong with our system. But otherwise, it's cultural. Not the only doctor. I, I talked to two other doctors since this has happened. One, uh, the one doctor uh, told me he's been refusing uh, a very large uh, weekly bonus to work in a hospital, and. Uh, he asked me to say, not say what his specialty was. <laughs> okay, so right there, you got a huge amount of fear. Now, the other doctor, uh, you know, has got his own practice, but does have to, you know, in order to have his own practice, he has to have uh, privileges in certain hospitals and everything. Uh, hospitals, he doesn't agree with the basics of how they're run. 
so uh, I've been talking to this guy about practicing medicine now for for over 10 years, and every year it just gets worse. You, you have fewer and fewer. Uh, he said to begin with, a lot of doctors are just plain stupid. Um, he said he... Uh, he said, he said some of them are just good at taking tests. He said, but the, the worst thing about it is, is that you have people with a two years associate degree that were getting drunk most of their time in college and having a football team pulling a train on them that, uh, you know, while this guy is busting his ass in medical school and they are deciding who a patient gets referred to. Yeah. He said, no, I'm the doctor. I'm the one that went to school to do this. And I knew who... The best doctors are in my area. You know, I know who to refer somebody to. It shouldn't be some bimbo that was, uh, you know, just getting drunk and having sex in college who has this degree in, you know, like insurance management or, or, or some, you know, hospital hospital administration. So, uh, you know, the, all three of the doctors I talked to are just completely disgusted with the state of the profession. And the few nurses I talked to, uh, it ranged from disgusted to scared to death to uh, disgusted and scared to death. Hmm. Um, you know, well, so... When, when you talk about... Uh... You know, the the metaphor of like, oh, this is wartime conditions. These this is like a two sided thing, because it's a attempt on one side to privilege this circumstance above the kind of baseline human condition that you know, oh, our brave heroes whom we must regretfully sacrifice into the meat grinder with mass uh, unnecessary casualties, but it also does describe an actual human dynamic like when you when you when you talk about like the callousness exhibited towards patients like the alarm going off that nobody particularly gives a shit about because it's been going off for 92 hours and everybody's working 18 hour shifts that's that's a human constant that's why it's actually extremely difficult to set up human systems that respond effectively to emergencies and effectively like the only way that you do that is by kind of uh, collaborative uh, well-defined patterns of behavior that are kind of enforced by peer pressure like you you end up needing if you want something to be able to respond to a you know quote unquote emergency that goes on for longer than 72 hours. It requires relentless training and very clear patterns of response that, you know, any person at any time can sort of uh, effectively veto uh, the fact that they're, they're not actually being followed. And this is something that the medical profession as a whole just can't actually deal with. Like, honestly, I don't really... Again, like it, it would be nice if, you know, after 96 hours of dealing with the constant, you know, cacophonous monotony of yet another patient comes in with the same symptoms, requires the same invasive response according to everything that you're told. Like by the end of that, you're not really capable of intellectually processing oh, yeah, there might actually be a better way of dealing with this. Like, you're barely able at that point to respond to 
oh shit, yet another uptick in people coding, like yet another necessity to scramble to this thing. People actually do get exhausted, not just physically, but in their ability to respond to novel stimuli. Like, it's just, it's it's something well, yeah, that... I mean... You, well, go on, Nick. Well, an emergency is something that by definition is an, is an exceptional state. And so, for you, if you you, you know you go in, your your mother, or your your your, uh, your wife, or something like that is in a terminal state. I mean, to you, this is like an, a world shattering event, and to somebody else, it's their it's their day job. Right. I mean, it's 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 an ugly situation that you know there there are of course ways that we can respond better to this. And that's when you start to go up the chain to people who you're not just putting the responsibility on their kind of basic biological ability to respond. Because like if you take a person and you just keep them awake for a sufficient amount of time, you can get them to do a lot of things that they should not do and they would regret doing once they come to their senses. But there are people whose specific job it is to be immune from those stimuli and to actually think about the big picture and how to respond to these things and what the appropriate course of treatment is and how to accommodate other people's purely biological and blameless failings. So, I mean, honestly, like... I, I don't care if somebody was a thought in college. Like there's there's plenty of people who like signed up and it's like, bro, I'm I'm qualified to change bedpans and run IVs. Like that's that's what I am qualified to do. And if you change bedpans and run IVs in a crisis situation, like you you pay for yourself at any payoff. Like you you've massively reduced the aggregate death toll like historically that's basically all that nurses did so i mean somebody who's like a certified nurse's assistant versus like an rn versus a master's of nursing or whatever who's like basically just you know a doctor without the degree in terms of the discretion that they're provided i mean it's 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 not their fundamental responsibility to set up the system they're operating within a system that is encouraging them and mandating that they make bad decisions through if nothing else just you know raw fatigue and executing a plan that they were told to execute that was just flawed ab initio the uh, doctor that I met out in Portland who bought me dinner, okay, uh, at, the, at the time he was working out of a Seattle hospital, but, you know, he's, uh, he moved on somewhere else and asked me not to say. Uh, I was partially talking to, uh, I was par- partially talking to him because I was interested in him helping me uh, with some medical details for some science fiction stuff I want to do. He was talking to me, I think, like a scientist looking at a lab rat. He was trying to figure out that, you know, how I could, um, um, how I could think given my history. Um, 
But he told me in his opinion that um, what the American modern medical system has evolved into is nothing but a financial system to get your house, to kill you in such an extended process that there's no way that your family will be able to inherit your house, that, that some, some financial institution will get your house. It's uh, one I mean, sixth of the economy. It's almost one fifth dollars spent in America. It's almost twenty percent. I mean it's 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 almost more. Um so death uh, on the installment plan. <laughs> yeah, so I just don't looking at that and then this irrational, seemingly irrational push over the past couple years for everything medically transgender to be good and positive. <laughs> Uh, when it's when it's going to be such a small slice of the population, uh, to me, there's uh, when he said that that fit together with really this big transgender obsession that the government seems to have. I've always believed that if the our society keeps on evolving technologically and economically the way it is, that it's just going to end up being you know we're basically going to be cars on a rotational used car lot. They get reprocessed. I really that uh, there's just going to be more involvement in governance and medicine and it mixed in the future. Uh, and I think we're seeing it in, in a spike right here. And uh, you know, there's going to be changing health patterns. The planet's uh, the planet's definitely cooling. At the northern and eastern and western United States is getting wetter for the past three years. I mean, it snowed every day in Utah this March. I went through two feet of snow in Montana uh, just like five or six days ago. Uh, I haven't seen the sun in Maryland or Pennsylvania or Jersey for like a total of the last 40 days I've been out here. Uh, I've only been here for like five days, but like all of December and most of November, I didn't see it. You know, we're going through a wetter period, so there's going to be more respiratory ailments. It's going to be more excuse for them to pull, you know, this bogus quarantine type stuff and make medicine part of the government. I, I think that's where it's headed. I want to I want to add that I, I think that's allegorically I've experienced the same thing. Um, so you'll, where I am, I won't say where I am, but this time last year, it was on average about 20 degrees warmer, um, about the same level of humidity, but sunnier, sunnier, warmer, less windy. Uh, a couple nights ago, it was 35 degrees in late April. And in my where I am, late April, 35 degrees at night, raining, windy. I was, you know, I was like, what season am I in? And then the next day, cloudy, groggy, no heat, miserable, totally miserable. And I, you know, huge swaths of the country have experienced a very, very prolonged, wet winter. Hasn't been so super cold. But it's been very prolonged and wet. And we did a show on this a while back that most likely we're headed into a global cooling cycle. And I think that you're right. We are going to see the effects of that start to take place. And that might also explain why this thing isn't necessarily going away as fast as some thought it would. And, you know, typically these coronaviruses 
get nixed pretty quickly as soon as things get hot and sunny. They just can't survive uh, from a from a viral load standpoint. They're actually incredibly weak viruses. They can't sustain themselves very long on surfaces with a lot of UV radiation. Well, yeah, they're just tiny heat. molecules that right. just get they, disintegrated they're not, by this stuff. Right. There are there are viruses that do very well in those circumstances, but and coronaviruses are not one of them. So you have to kind of well, look you at know it what as, helps with that is if everybody is uh, confined to closed <laughs> air circulation. Yeah, I've I've systems had the in I've the had dead of summer on my place open yeah. for hours for well over a month, no matter how cold it gets. Like, I mean, first you go to the store, the same as everyone else, and then you yeah. go back to your apartment complex with everybody else. And then, uh, you know, of course you can't go to the park or the beach or, you know, the walking trails or what have you. Just, you know, from one pod of the spaceship to the other pod, it doesn't really matter what season it is. That, uh, the respiratory ailments, uh, you know, respiratory epidemics, if you look at, uh, the the really moist moist cycle the deluge from 1315 to 1321 that started the little ice age you see a lot of it there if you look at the peloponnesian war the the, the medical historians still don't agree on what it was but it was uh, a respiratory ailment that caused high fevers that hit athens right. uh, but Thucydides, all through his account, he's talking about unusual astronomical phenomena and the fact that there's unusually high levels of volcanism like there is right now, uh, which goes along with low sunspot activity. And we're going into a 30 year period of low sunspot activity. You know, so we're looking at we're, we're looking at heading into something maybe that was uh, like the late 1700s when. You know, I mean, uh, when Washington was crossing the Delaware, there were, you know, chunks of ice floating in it. So, uh, you know, we're maybe going into, you know, uh, a cooling period, uh, you know, severe or mild. But the cooling period, the cooling periods typically start with uh, elevated moisture. The, uh, you know, my, my doctor back in Maryland told me two years ago, he said for the past year and a half, respiratory ailments, have been way up because it's been moister. We're breathing liquid air in the Mid-Atlantic. He said it increases the pollen count. He said, so now I've got to tell people to take an expectorant for a week or two after they're done uh, clearing the lung infection up because people are holding liquid in their lungs. So it's, you know, there's just probably, you know, these phases historically see a higher incidence of respiratory ailments and the way this thing has been reported on if they had ever reported on the flu like they report on this you would have had the same effects and the flu comes around every year so i definitely think in november i'm planning on being somewhere where i'm living at the base of a mountain so I can't be contained uh, when November rolls around. I'm, I'm worried about that too. Years. Fall is going to be strange, but the election coming no. and the possibility of yet another coincidental uh, virus striking the entire planet uh, yeah. and the government getting ready to do God knows what. Yeah, you got to be just you got to be anti-fragile at best. Uh, we're robust uh, at least because the possibilities of all these potential scenarios happening is seemingly not negligible and just in case and that case is again very possible uh you don't want to depend on the system 
as we've talked about the medical system, we've talked about the economic system being completely messed up and then all these uh, financial interventions increasing the role of the government, uh, we have very little control over that. And ironically, the election coming up is supposed to give us the sense that we have some control. But I think all of the listeners know that that's really just uh, theater for people who uh, should know better. Well, I think that it's interesting if you look at both the Civil War period and World War One. During the Civil War, huge amount of the casualties just on uh, both the Confederate and Union armies were attributed to disease in camp. Over well over 100,000 on both sides died simply of disease. And that's not taking into account the hundreds of thousands of civilians who died of those diseases coming into contact with these soldiers. There were a massive amount of people who died of various diseases, some respiratory, some not during the Civil War. Point Lookout Maryland. They locked them all up there, the Confederate prisoners, and most of them died of tuberculosis. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there there have been massive disease problems in this country before that we've gotten past. Um, and if you look at you know, World War One, that era, um, you know, basically 100 years ago, was actually a very sustained wet period that ex- actually helps explain why the war by the rainy period in Europe became such a disaster for everyone involved. No one really thought it was going to be that wet, that consistently wet, that consistently muddy. The ground refused to freeze. It just stayed um, viscous, but wet and cold year round. There was an enumeration of diseases, of bacteria, of people's foots falling off from staying wet too long. It was absolutely terrible. And the influenza that broke out, you know, the, the, the Spanish flu, which I, we should just really say was a East Asian flu. It was just that the Spaniards managed to report accurately on it first. Um, this East Asian virus that emerged at the time, many of the deaths were attributed to soldiers in these terrible, constantly wet, cold um, positions inside of World War One, and the second wave that killed a, a great deal of people in the United States and around the world um, was mostly due to improper medical care, overprescription of aspirin and you know aspirin-like products at the time, um, and you know the fact that a lot of the cities in America were still slums. This is before the cities really started to get cleaned up in the 1920s, and that was part of the reason why they got cleaned up. Um, but rural America. <laughs> basically emerged almost unscathed from uh, from that flu period. And uh, were, if you read accounts, they're actually kind of baffled at how bad it was getting in the cities. And, you know, they get these like people from the cities showing up in their town and saying like, you know, city's been emptied out. Philadelphia is basically gone. Uh, you know, I, I don't have anywhere to live. And so there, there were all, there was all this relocation going on. And because information didn't spread nearly as quick, there was no 24 hours news cycle. Uh, a lot of the rural, you know, something like 40% of the country was rural at the time, uh, would get pieces of information every few weeks. And they thought it was, it was a mixture of like laughter because in their mind, the cities had become full of like swarthy immigrants and Finally, they're dying off, but also a mix of just confusion. Like, how is this happening? When did this start? No one could really pinpoint what the situation was like. Now, I I feel that because we have a 24-hour news cycle that feeds off of this, that every time you turn on CNN, 
there is a dashboard showing case count and death count right next to each other. And down at the bottom is total recovered. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, you know, the first two big numbers you see, cases and deaths, and every time it hits some um, variable of 10 or 5, We've, we've approached 175,000 deaths. We've approached 180,000 deaths. And then they spend a whole day talking about it. it. Freaks people the fuck out. People don't look at it logically. People don't say, okay, well, I should take precautions. I should think I should be smart about when I go out and what I do. But, you know, hey, what's, you know, is it really the end of the world? And I think that our political class, which has been salivating for decades to, uh, for some kind of crisis like this to enact policies they've wanted to enact for a long time, saw this and thought, aha, finally we can scare the shit out of everyone because no one in this generation has faced hardship outside of the 08 crisis for several decades. And uh, at the first sign of trouble, they're all going to scatter. And we need to, uh, we need to swoop in and save the day and, and you know, enact all these reforms that we wanted to do for um, for a very long time, paper over decades of bad economic decisions at the corporate level and, you know, just fleece the American taxpayer to cover for it all. All the unsecured tranches of debt that have basically left the market way over leveraged, you know, the American taxpayer is being asked to pay for that. And the rationale is, well, there's a coronavirus. That's why you need to, to cough up and help Wall Street out. Well, we, uh, we ostensibly were going to do a show about uh, James's new uh, article and book. Um, we still have some time to do that if we want to do a rough transition. But James was alluding to briefly before to the Peloponnesian War, which is in the vein of uh, the topic of his article and, and book. Uh, and it's entitled uh, Barbarism and Civilization, which is a kind of a snappy title. But James, do you want to maybe bridge our current conversation with that going forward? Well, I was looking at, um, yeah, I, I've been working on a series of history books, uh, and I've had some help with some people on uh, uh, the evolution and the evolution of uh, really the uh, Aryan warrior tradition. And uh, looking at the Peloponnesian War, which is a book, I had just got done reading Victor Davis Hansen's uh, book, A War Like No Other, which is a quote from Thucydides about the Peloponnesian War, and Peloponnesian just means or, the Peloponnese was Red Face Island, some Asiatic drunken king had bought it at one point. But the uh, the traditionally American historians look at it in the Cold War mode. They compare democratic Athens to uh, Cold War America and uh, the uh, uh, the Spartans uh, with their weird totalitarian society they compared with the Soviet Union. It, it kind of never really worked for me. It, it only works on a couple levels militarily, but I was uh, reading this in uh, the wake of everything that was going on in society about a year ago, and it seemed to me uh, when you describe a world power like Athens, who is basically uh, at this point economically beating the crap out of the Persian Empire, and they had this Athenian League where they've enslaved all of these smaller maritime powers, and they have proxy governments propped up everywhere. They're installing democracies in every little country around their world, which was the Middle Sea, the Mediterranean. 
uh, it starts to look a lot more like uh, blue America, you know, the democratic, liberal, leftist, coastal America against red America. The It's starting to look like an election map when you look at Sparta and compare it, you know, what's their tradition uh basically infantry and what's the uh what's the tradition of, of uh and they're very conservative and what's the tradition of their enemies the athenians uh they're very cosmopolitan they're bringing in disease through commerce uh they end up dying of a plague that they inflict upon themselves by hiding in their cities from uh, from the spartan enemy and uh one of the most telling things was when thucydides talked about one of the greatest casualties of the war was that the meaning of words changed because this is same faith, same culture, same language, just different governing principles on us and mostly on a civic level because even though they consider themselves to be different tribes and nations and even races with you know the five major Greek races, the Dorian and the Ionian being the, the two biggest ones, uh, they had a shared culture uh, and his he pointed out that in his view the greatest casualty was the meaning of words the meaning of words changed in this uh essentially this civil war uh between the parties that had defeated the persian empire and uh you know in their great allied war against the persian invasion uh 30 years earlier uh, the very meaning of what courage was, what cowardice was, what right and wrong was, what virtue was. These things all started to change, and they were sliding on this negative scale. Um, and so um, I, I just <clears throat> saw it everywhere. And his, his description of actually the, the plague that hit him, this respiratory ailment. Uh, and it was... Uh, leaving the people in the countryside alone and afflicting the people in the cities. Uh, and I, I was reminded of my friend Bob in, in the mountains in Utah talking about uh, when this hit, the super wealthy who owned their own jets were flying into the next valley over from him. And they were bringing the disease with them, like all these uh, all these cases of this virus up in the Rockies are really in these enclaves where the wealthy are jetting in. Yeah, they're, San they're, Francisco they're and coming from New York. Yeah, in a lot right? of cases. Mm -hmm. it, you know, so it, there were just so many parallels uh, to it. I mean, I started looking into it uh, just from the uh, the parallels of the interior versus the coast. And that mirroring conservative versus uh, liberal and right versus leftist. Uh, but then the disease thing just works even better. It just it just caps it off and it makes it almost like that first 10 years of war, almost like a uh, like a, a distant mirror of what ended up happening here. Uh, so. Well, I, I did a brief review of the Peloponnesian War, not having known much about it, if anything. Uh, and so I'll just give that for the audience in case uh, no one is super familiar with it. And then hopefully you can expand upon what I thought was interesting. But just going from memory now, uh, this will hopefully highlight what is the most interesting, uh, is the Athenians were engaged in sort of an alliance, almost like NATO, if you want to make these rough analogies again, against the Persians. And the Persians had the largest empire at, up until that time in, in world history. 
uh, and only to be succeeded, I think, by the, the Romans, uh, and then maybe the Mongols after that. But the Persians were, were big players, and we all know the, the story of Thermopylae, where Leonidas leads the 300 and uh, holds them off for a spell. Uh, but the, um, the Athenians had created, uh, I think it's the Delian League uh, on the island of Delos. Uh, it was this federation of all these islands in their sea, that were paying tribute to them in order to fund the the navy pr- predominantly, but overall the military uh, alliance to protect them from the Persians who were basically invading everybody around them. And so this this actually worked for uh, a couple decades at least. But the problem was the not only were the Spartans who were the, the by far the the second largest group in that area of the Greek peoples who were getting a little bit annoyed by the Athenians' arrogance and demands for further uh, contributions to the treasury, which was ultimately just partially going to the military, but also going to these great works projects in Athens, which we know today who, that are still standing uh, for the most part, or at least partly. Uh, and that what's that's what arguably makes Athens so famous. But the resentment was building up sort of like how we send all this money to Washington, D.C., and they don't really do much with it other than fund more of their own programs. And you know, the, the surrounding uh, suburbs of Washington are fabulously wealthy, yet they don't really do their job in other areas. And of particular concern to me is the southern border. Uh, but uh, the analogy, I think, is there. And people are getting annoyed, and so they were starting to rebel. And so the Athenians were going out and squashing some of this. And But they were pretty good in terms of fighting, and so they were able to actually hold on. But the situation was getting tenuous to the point where the Spartans were seeing opportunities to kind of break up a little bit of this. And there was there's a little isthmus between where the Spartans live and where the main uh, allies of Athens live. And that's the area called Corinth. And the Corinthians were sort of playing both sides off each other, trying to get both sides to give them money to kind of ostensibly ally with them, but then they just switch sides again. So that's a kind of a common thing you see in a lot of very small countries. Singapore does that a lot with the West and and, uh, China. But that is what kicked off the first Peloponnesian War, where there was not sufficient funding or support uh, to Corinth. And so then the Athenians came in and uh, there was uh, the Spartans started fighting them. Uh, and then it, uh, I, and I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of detail, but this is all from memory. But the the other interesting thing that, because that, that got settled eventually. But what was also interesting about this, and they call it the war, the war, but it's actually a series of wars because there were actual peace treaties in between them. Uh, but it was predominantly between Sparta and Athens. And so that's the, that's the conglomeration of all these conflicts. But what was also interesting was the Athenians were actually trying to do an end run around Sparta after they had fought this initial skirmish. They tried to take over uh, the city, city-state of Syracuse, which is on Sicily, the island of Sicily, which had nothing to do with Italy or the Roman Empire at the time. Sicily has, has a very complex history because they've been taken over by so many different groups over time because they're right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, but at the time, it was sort of sparsely populated by kind of a native group, but the biggest city was, was Syracuse, as far as I know. Uh, and that was actually a Spartan, ethnically Spartan uh, group. And the Athenians thought they can go over there, take that over, 
and then use the entire island as a way to build up their wealth in order to then take over all of Italy and all of Carthage. And this is according to um, one of the, the generals that actually was, was sent over there to, to do this invasion. And then he defected to Sparta. He told the Spartans this plan. Then the Spartans got really scared. And then they went in, they sit, and they sent in their armies to reinforce that island. And that, that kicked off an even larger conflagration, which ended up bringing the Persians into it. And then eventually the Athenians uh, ended up getting besieged and the Spartans uh, were able to ultimately prevail but it took a lot longer uh, and so the the kind of backstabbing and the uh, the delusions of grandeur and also the the corruption I think are, are sort of the themes that I took away from that that caused the resentment to uh, kick off this war uh, and again I'll make the parallel with Washington DC and and your analogy about the coastal the blue cities with the red states I think is very apt uh, for modern uh, contextualization I think that well some of the backstory behind the Peloponnesian War which has been uncovered via historians archaeologists that have bolstered, I think, the context that Thucydides is writing about. Um, in one instance, the Athenians were basically this preeminent naval power, yes, and uh, many of the Greek city-states, particularly the Spartans, actually, felt as though that naval power, that the, the, the infrastructure, the human capital, all of it, was financed in part or was contributed to in part by the various Greek city-states and by the various Greek polities, not just in uh, the, uh, the the peninsula, the Grisian peninsula, but elsewhere. Uh, off the what's now the southern coast of France, uh, parts of Italy, parts of uh, North Africa, uh, parts of Anatolia, and so on had you know huge Greek presence and they had contributed to building up the Athenian navy because it was needed to defeat the Persian Empire at sea. And then they felt the Athenians went and took that infrastructure, took that human capital and said, but this is totally ours now. And you have to play by our rules on the sea. And if you don't play by our rules, we can be at your port next week, two weeks, whatever, we'll be there. We're going to burn it down. We're going to burn down every ship you have. We're going to kill all of the sailors you have. We're going to kill all your fishermen. And that's just the way the game is played. And so for huge swaths of uh, the, Gre the Greek sphere all around the Mediterranean, this was seen as kind of ridiculous. Like, who are the Athenians to take what we helped them build and then say it's totally theirs, doesn't belong to anyone else, unless you enter into a very compact, um, almost predatory alliance with them. So you might as well just be their enemy and not enter this alliance with them. Uh, Sparta initially, uh, reading through Sidides, uh, Victor Davis Hansen's book and some other sources, was act very, very reluctant to get into the war. Um, and to even start fighting the Athenians. For various political reasons in Sparta, it was going through kind of a rough time internally. Um, and it was asked, particularly by Corinth, who was kind of playing both sides, but generally wanted Spartan rule, uh, the, the ruling class, 
in Corinth um, was much less partial to the political leanings and the uh, and the uh, let's say more laissez-faire attitude towards things like homosexuality that the Athenians and their friends had. Um, and the Corinthians ultimately wanted the Spartan way of life to predominate in Greece. They saw it as a return to traditional Greek standing that the Greeks uh, that the Greek sphere across the Mediterranean would prosper and would continue to be decentralized um, instead of a single power holding sway and sort of a tyrannical approach to all of these uh, Greek diaspora. Spartan, Sparta was very, very reluctant to get into this, uh, really did not, the, the king of Sparta really did not want to get involved, um, looked at Athens uh, still somewhat fondly, remember, you know, the, the Spartans trying to remember the fond memories they have of working with the Athenians hand in hand to defeat the British, or sorry, defeat Persian, uh, defeat the Persian Empire. But as time went on, and as uh, the first war began to approach, it became very apparent that uh, the Athenians were obviously plotting various takeover schemes, were plotting to um, bully uh, dozens of Greek city-states and Greek outposts into a formal pact with Athens, which would give Athens total control. And that would mean control over ports, over shipping lanes, over logistics, over food supplies, over luxury items, over every aspect of life for Greeks would mean that it would fall under the rule of Athenians, uh, which was not what the Greeks had signed up for by uh, empowering Athens to grow and uh, defeat the t what was perceived as the tyranny of the Persian Empire. Uh, so once Sparta actually got into the war, it changed, you know, very dynamic change. Before that, there were a variety of these small uprisings. Nexos was, uh, was one of them um, against Athenian rule that were pretty swiftly put down and pretty brutally, uh, almost needlessly brutally put down. When the Spartans entered the war and actually, you know, in their first major battle, completely kicked the shit out of the Athenian military. Like the Athenian military on foot had no idea how to fight uh, the Spartan military. Uh, basically got slaughtered well, in the first One of the interesting battles. things about the Spartans that uh, I wasn't aware of until I did a little review, and I've heard the term helot, but the, the Spartans, one of the reasons they were so good and they were considered uh, par excellence, like there was no peer to them. They were the best at what they did, fighting in those phalanxes with the, the long spears. I think that's what what the technology they were using, but also the training that they had endured throughout their lives uh, was second to none. And it was because they were truly a, almost like the samurai, like a warrior guild. And it was about a ratio of like one to seven or so of the warrior class to the helot class. And the helot class actually did all the farming that fed the, the Spartan civilization. And so it was really enabled by these other uh, peoples who would sometimes revolt because they weren't treated that well uh, that enabled these guys to become su such top-notch warriors. And it's it's quite interesting to, again, make the parallel with a, a professional soldier in the U.S. military or, frankly, any modern military uh, to the uh, civilian because the civilian really enables that soldier to train like they do. Uh, and that model, it seems to have kind of uh, won the day in terms of modern militaries. Well, was, you see it uh, used very, very effectively um, by a variety of states later on in medieval and post-medieval Europe. 
Um, uh, the state of Burgundy was a good example. I would say for a long time, uh, the Knights of Asturias and uh, the and then later the Castilian Knights and in, in the uh, the Reconquista of Spain. That was a seven hundred year long conflict, and the the warrior class was propped up for seven hundred years by like a farming class, and that was those are the two classes in society outside of priests. It basically degraded to this very unsophisticated, very brutal culture that, uh, that you know kind of. Gives you some insight to why maybe the Spanish are the way they are, um, or why they are the way they are. You know, the, their later adventures in Latin America you know, kind of show this. But um, you see, this model is actually very effective if, if that's what you want to accomplish. Um, probably the most well-known state that performed the best with this model was Prussia. Um, Prussia basically had no natural resources. Its greatest natural resource was that the people there were incredibly smart and figured out how to build a military state out of basically nothing uh, and lasted for hundreds of years. And you know, every time Prussians would enter a war, the dynamic of the war would completely change. And it was uh, seen as obviously the worst case scenario was to be on the opposite side of the Prussians. So for the Athenians, especially when they actually start fighting Spartans, like there's this big battle at uh, Tanagra in 457 BC. The Athenian hoplites basically have no idea, and they're, they're described as being totally confused in their ability to fight this battle. They have no clue how to actually approach Spartan infantry effectively. They have no clue how to use cavalry effectively. They have no idea how to use their peltists or their archers effectively. Spartans' shields are too thick, too big. They're moving too quickly. They, that was one of the things that they noted was that um, because the Athenians had never had it's been a very long time since they had actually squared off against Spartans, and had always watched Spartans fight Persians from a distance. Really had no clue what it was like to fight uh, Spartan hoplites up close. They moved very rapidly. They uh, had pretty good armor. Great shields, long spears, uh, typically had a couple weapons for hand-to-hand -hand combat on them at any given time. Spartan units were typically mixed. There would be archers and peltists in the back who had uh, you know, a primary weapon as well, so they could easily convert to a different fighting stance. So you had these mixed units that were being deployed uh, equilaterally across the battlefield in you know, sort of a combat-at-arms mixed scenario and suddenly the athenians who are used to this very conventional style of warfare um where you know they would kind of send in one kind of unit after another have no idea how to deal with this get completely wiped out um, and suddenly the spartans are then going around and training up corinth uh lysos and some of these, these other elos and some of these other uh city-states and regions of greece in their combat methods. So there's this great instance in Sidigia, uh, I think is the name of the place, later, much later, and it's like the second part of the war, um, where the Corinthians and the, and the Athenians get into like this street battle, basically like Stalingrad style fighting in this big um, urban sprawl. 
And by this point, the Corinthians are, you know, fully on the side of Spartans. They've stopped trying to play both sides and they're taking Spartan weapons and Spartan training. And they have like, I think the closest thing you could compare it to is the U.S. military. It'll drop in, you know, CIA operatives and special forces to like teach Kurdish militias how to kill ISIS members. Right. And they'll be embedded with those teams. It was basically what was going on. The Spartans were embedding commanders inside of these Corinthian and other Greek units and having them fight in certain ways. So the Athenians, you know, are totally unaccustomed to these open field battles. They're totally unaccustomed to fighting guerrilla warfare, which the Spartans start engaging in as well. And that's how they destroy much of the Athenian landscape and farmlands. Um, and then they're totally unprepared to fight these big hand-to-hand sort of really chaotic street fights. Um, so suddenly the Athenians are, you know, losing the war pretty rapidly. Their only reason why Athens held on for as long as it did was that it had a fairly big population. It had an extensive trade network. It had a lot of money. Yeah, it could, it it actually, could trade it actually with took the ocean the, because yeah, it, it, they it weren't cut this, off. Yeah, it took the entire pot, like the entire pot of gold that the Delian League had and basically went to Delos and said, actually, that doesn't belong to you anymore. That doesn't belong to the League. That belongs to Athens. So this also, because of the way that they thought they could sustain themselves throughout the war, even though in most battles they lost pretty horribly, um, they basically had to take this approach where they would impoverish their allies, impoverish their friends, which led to more revolts, which eventually even led to Thebes aligning itself with Sparta. Um, and you know, their decisions to stay alive longer actually doomed them, and that's why Athens was basically relegated to being a very unimportant part of Greece from there on out and was swiftly conquered by Alexander the Great less than a century later, basically due to the fact that they exhausted all of their friendships just to stay alive in, a, in an unwinnable war for an extended period of time. The, the Delian League, the Athenians ended up uh, calling the Athenian League, and they actually went so far, and uh, Delos was the center of uh, one of the many cults of Apollo. And Apollo had a lot of different cult names, uh, and a lot of them fit geopolitically with what went on with this war. They went so far as to remove the buried bodies uh, of the Delians from their own island, okay, to reconsecrate it. Uh, you know, uh, there was... Uh, yeah, the Athenians got really skanky. The, the Spartans did some really skanky stuff during this war, but uh, uh, in the beginning, it was... Uh, it was almost like Athens were going to, going to war against Apollo. It was it was really interesting the way they got hit with disease. He was the god of disease. He was also the god of wolves and of birds, uh, and of prophecy. And the birds were connected with prophecy and disease, and the wolves were connected with disease. And he was also the god of the sun, the shining one. And the Spartans would not go to war against the Athenians until they went to the main. Uh, shrine of Apollo Helios, the shining one at Delphi. And, uh, it, it was, uh, 
that part, the deal with the Athenians and how they dealt with the different sanctuaries of Pawa was uh, is, is pretty interesting. And they're definitely uh, the less traditional of uh, of the parties here, and uh, they were less pious in terms of the faith. The Adam's characterization of the uh, the Delian League is based against Persia is basically like NATO uh, is right, and also uh, well, we we had kind of a Freudian slip where he said against the British after the, uh, when you meant against the per- Persians afterward afterwards and that's also another good analogy that almost what happened with the spartans and the athenians is kind of what happened with the union and the confederacy after breaking away from britain after uh after defeating that and you might say that what's happened with the u.s after the cold war the split between interior and coastal you know left and right conservative and liberal uh after the defeat of the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Uh, there might be a parallel there too, but the uh, what, the interesting thing is is both sides learned how to fight. The Spartans actually ended up winning this war at sea. They started out without a navy, and the Athenians actually ended up having some success and mixed uh, combined arms land actions eventually uh, in this. So, it, you know, like with a lot of wars, they ended up teaching each other, and they got better at the war. Um, but the, uh, you know, just the seeds of revolt in all of these vassal states that the Athenians held uh, uh, spelled their doom. They both depended on large slave populations. Uh, you, you had as much as 10 to 1 slave to free with the Athenians and the Spartans. Uh, and then you also had slave states in the case of the Athenians. So where the Spartans were renowned as the champions of freedom, it was because they didn't believe in enslaving other states. The Helots were actually Messenians. They were an enemy tribe that the Spartans conquered. And instead of keeping them as a separate slave state, they demoted them as Adam pointed out, to basically slave farmers, and they worked under the management of the Spartan women who ran the homesteads, and the Spartan youths would actually terrorize and murder these guys as practice for war. Uh, so it was a reign of terror, but it was also a reign of terror in Athens, and although it's billed as like democracy against oligarchy, it's very clear through Thucydides' account that the Athenian democratic model was just a way of the Athenian oligarchs hiding behind the demos and manipulating them as puppets. Uh, and in the end, during, uh, during the various treaties, after the first treaty, the Athenians actually promised to help the Spartans put down slave revolts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so in the end, you have this class solidarity, even between, you know, concerning the uh, the two enemy parties, you know, so and again, that that reflects in, in every age and in, in our own time, where you ultimately want to see this class solidarity on the part of the elite. There's another aspect that I always found funny and that uh, the Spartans were much more tolerant of non Greek people. Um, they were big promoters of uh, sort of Grecian Hellenic values and retaining Hellenic cultural and ethnic traits. Um, but they were much more amenable to being friends uh, and partners with um, non-Greeks than the Athenians were. And this led to a variety of problems for the Athenians. So the Athenian disaster 
in Syracuse and Sicily in general had to do with the fact that the Athenians showed up there with a really heavy hand and thought that we were going to, in the middle of this war, instead of focusing on the mission, they're focused on these ambitious plans for cultural expansion. To, to, to everyone else in the Mediterranean, they had already been experiencing uh, hundreds of years of Greek cultural expansion, and they were sort of getting tired of it. Um, so the, the Spartans used this many, many times. First of all, let's get it out of the way. Yes, the Spartans did, towards the end of the war, go to the Persian Empire and ask for money. Because the Spartans didn't want this war to drag out for another 20 years. They wanted it to end in two or three. They needed an extra dose of cash and weaponry to supercharge their military and put the Athenians down for good. Um, secondly, the Spartans went to traditional racial enemies of the Greeks, particularly the Thracians, um, well before the war started. Uh, Megarans were, were another, and it's not really clear if Megarans were Greek or if they were half Greek or, you know, not really clear there, but they were considered very lowly people by the Athenians. Um, Spartans were great friends of theirs as well. And uh, in multiple occasions, the Athenians went to Thrace and basically said, aha, we're going to democratize you. We're going to expand our culture. We're going to take your uh, your granaries, and uh, we're going to take your your horse lands the same way that we took the Thessalonian horse lands, and we're going to make that ours. And uh, you know, this this was sort of beyond the pale. This was after the peace had been signed. There was a, a peace period, and so the Spartans and the Corinthians looked at the Athenians and said, okay. You know, first he said, "There's, there's, we need to have a peace because the Athenians were getting demolished left and right, and they needed to institute a timeout in order to recuperate because you know they were confident that they were going to be conquered um, if they didn't do this." And then in the peace period, they immediately attempt to find various ways of. Um, uh, trying to placate the Spartans while undermining non-Greek Spartan allies. And to the Spartans, this was seen as yet another instance of the Athenian ideology going haywire. The Athenians just couldn't leave it alone. They couldn't leave people alone. They had to go everywhere and institute these values. They had to set up their little cults. They, they just couldn't afford not to for some reason. Um, this, the Spartans were comfortable with being different. Yes. Neighbors than their allies. Yeah. 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 The, the Spartans were, you, you could say, <laughs> you know, I think that the comparisons between the United States, Soviet Union, and Athens, Sparta, I mean, even Hansen himself kind of lays out that this is sort of trite that people that make these Cold War arguments. I think don't really, it, it's it's sort of trite. Like a good way of looking at the Athenian model for its alliance with NATO, uh, I think is actually smart. But other than that, it's not smart. But I will I will say that the the, the Spartans did have traits of both the United States and the Soviet Union, and that they felt they could be friends with just about anyone. It did they didn't care what your what your ideology was, what your government was, what your religion was didn't matter to them. 
what mattered to them was that you were good at trading, was that you played fair. If they needed your help, you would help them and vice versa. And that was basically it for the Spartans. And this was a time when people took ideology seriously. Even wars were fought over religion and ideology uh, all over the world at this time. And the Greeks were no different. So the Spartans looked at it from a genuine ideological standpoint and said, you know, the Athenians are betraying Greek values. The Athenians are going around and trying to strip people of their inherent values and instill Greek values. Well, how is that different from the war, the ideological war that we fought in the Mediterranean against the Persian Empire, which was doing the same thing, which was trying to turn Greek Anatolia into its own vassal, its own cultural vassal. Why is that any different? So I think that, you know, to a large extent, the, uh, the, the Athenians undermined their own ability to operate by being weird ideologues um, by, you know, repeatedly treating their allies like trash. And uh, I think ultimately you can look at the United States and Athens similarly in one way in that they were both incredibly hypocritical places filled with a very, very strange elite that was very out of touch and ultimately doomed themselves um, because they simply couldn't look at the world in a more practical lens and try and pull back their, you know, they they were not magnanimous in their victory over Persia. They immediately wanted to um, take the opportunity in a very cruel way uh, to basically become a new version of the Persian Empire. And uh, it didn't sit well with just about anyone, which is why towards the end they had no allies. They had no friends, they had no allies, everyone had betrayed them. And they were sort of surrounded by their old friends and the Spartans. And uh, that was basically it for Athens. They insisted on practices, practicing this cultural imperialism where they had to install democracy where they went. Yeah. Which is very like it, it's every war that I've seen in my lifetime that the United States has gotten into. Um, that's been like the stated goal in a very Athenian way. But that's not that's not what any of the military guys want to do. It's what the political leaders do. So the contrast, exactly. it's almost like in our situation, the Spartans are the actual war fighters and the Athenians are the politicians and, uh, and the policymakers and everything. And, you know, I see things splitting along those seams in this country. Uh, but that, uh, you know, the, the Spartans were, uh, their best hero was Brasidas. He died the 10th year in uh, to the war, but he would go to all these states and tell them, we are not going to, uh, we will help you throw off the Athenian yoke and we're not going to insist that you stall a government of our style. They were perfectly fine with being the only weird ass, you know, two king, <laughs> you know, uh, advisory council government out there. They weren't trying to get other people to copy their governmental style, but the Athenians were insisting upon it. So again, that's where I see like really the, uh, where the analogy fits with America, you know, with this, with it being bipolar in that way. Um, but the, uh, uh, Hanson did a great job in that book and it was really, he gave me the idea to look at it this way when he said, who would have thought he said, and nobody in Greece started at the time, that a royal hamlet would end up rising up to defeat this glittering imperial city. 
Yeah, and Sparta, after the end of the uh, Persian War, the Spartan military kind of retired. Um, just the Persian Wars and some of those conflicts that followed or were related to it were so taxing, uh, you know, emotionally and physically on the Greeks, but the Spartans in particular, because they did so much fighting that um, they they needed a break. You can look at it the same way that uh, after after World War One, like we had all these military guys who came back uh, and basically just wanted to be left alone. You know, bought property out in the middle of nowhere, moved their family out there, and were like, mm. "Don't ever bother me again," or you know, "Don't ever call on me again." Um, it was so uh, I think debilitating for millions of them. In the same way, you know, probably tens of thousands of Spartan warriors uh, to to go through that for an extended period of time, this endless war, and they became this sort of sleepy backdoor, or not backdoor, but backwoods region um, that went back to its traditional way of life. wasn't trying to capitalize really on the the the, the, the defeat of the Persian infrastructure in the Mediterranean. Um, you can look at them, uh, maybe even, let's, you know, if you look at um, the British after World War I, uh, very, very iconoclastic, very withdrawn from the world, very, you know, the British military were very uninterested in more adventures. Uh, they were very uninterested in maintaining the empire, which is why it collapsed a few decades later. Um, you know, they they did not want to be um, opportunistic. They were very magnanimous in their victory, I think. Um, and be mostly because the Persians and the Spartans had actually had a relationship prior to the war. And uh, the Spartans had kind of felt odd about having gone and participated in this, you know, massive war against uh, a power or just a, a civilization that used to be somewhat friendly with them and used to have sort of a cultural exchange with them. Um, yep. the, Athene the Athenians, I think, ultimately were <laughs> refused to look at this in any other way, but like th they were somehow uniquely superior in in their own ways. And, uh, you know, the, the, the dichotomy between them and the fact that Sparta had to sort of reignite this engine of war that they had retired, that they had no plans of ever utilizing again. And they were so criticized by Lysos and by Corinth so many times for years for like not getting back in shape. You know, the, the Corinthians were just dumbfounded. What happened to Sparta? What happened to the warriors? What happened to the heroes, you know, that, that fought the last big war? Where did those guys go? Are they, are they all dead? Are they old? You know, the Corinthians just couldn't believe it that the Spartans were not uh, were not getting back into action, you know, as swiftly as they used to. It was like uh, it was like getting an old 1967 Chevrolet engine. You know, like it takes some time to get it going. You got to put a lot of grease in there. You got to replace some of the pistons. But as soon as you get that muscle car up and running, holy shit! Like you know, it's a it's a sight to behold. But it takes a long time for it to warm up and to actually be useful for something. Yeah, that was one of the kind of, I mean, all of Greek society was just super weird. Like <laughs> yeah. when when you when you look at something 
and you see like okay there's these two empire like your your brain like reasons by extrapolation but there's just so much weirdness going on in greek culture that it it's like a completely alien like look at the jokes in the iliad the uh, the the best one like these are just super cruel people like culturally I mean, not that they're not that that's like a a thing to kind of cast aspersions, like oh, they deserve to be punished by their wickedness or whatever, but like that that's like a cultural trait that comes through. Uh, the 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 thing that they keep repeating, I think they actually do it twice in the Iliad, and then died so and so, son of a fortune teller. He didn't see that coming. Like it. <laughs> It's it's the best joke in the Iliad. Like it's so good that they they like reuse it like over and over again. Like the these ancient peoples, they had like games where like the game is you take a cat and you light the cat on fire, and and like that's the game. Like it, it's the like you have a a cast of basically like almost slave soldiers that are brought on campaign where they're not necessarily allowed to leave and they're not necessarily there because they desperately want to and they're just like eating millet for month after month after month like i mean these are all very uh foreign conceptions of uh you know what it means to exist in a society, what a society is, what a society is for, like what the good life is. And it's something where, unless you're kind of very cognizant that maybe these people just have completely different priorities than you do, you're going to kind of go through that same contemporary lens and you're just going to get all sorts of weird stuff wrong. And you're going to uh, just kind of turn Athenians into either, you know, nice, nice Western liberals or, uh, you know, evil American uh, neoliberal scumbags when neither is really the case. Yeah, I think that you're right. Like Greek, especially ancient Greek culture is so layered. I think, James, you would agree with this. There's so much going on in the writing, like the actual Peloponnesian War book that that Thucydides put together. There's so much cultural milieu that unless you have footnotes and you read other books about the subject by trained historians and archaeologists who spend their whole life trying to understand this, there's so much going on on a cultural level that it completely feels weird. It feels like you're reading a fantasy novel. You're reading a novel about, um, you know, basically Lord of the Rings. It doesn't feel real sometimes, even though by by all historical measures, it's actually a fairly measured account of how things were conducted. Uh, it, it doesn't feel quite real, and I think that has to do with the fact that Greek culture in particular at the time was so layered, so detailed, so, uh, I hate to say the word, but diverse, that... To the average 21st century American, uh, almost not, like there are elements of it that you want 
to imbue into your own life the themes of courage, themes of sacrifice, the themes of loyalty, um, of you know ideological restraint, things like that, the criticisms of democracy. But it's enmeshed in this totally different outlook on the world and this like totally different totally different constraints that we just don't have. And, and I don't know. When I, I reread it recently and reread parts of it, I should admit, but I was again thinking what I had thought the first time I read it was this feels like a fantasy novel, not because it's fantastical. Like if you want a real Greek fantasy novel, you could read um, The Odyssey, uh, for example, which is total just fantasy. But uh, the Peloponnesian War feels almost more fantastical than that because these- and it, it goes both directions because yeah. it's it's like wow this this is like when you watch Star Wars and you're like oh <laughs> wow this is just a Star Wars ripoff it's like yeah it, it established the trope when yes. when you have something like the uh, the Melian uh, dialogue. Where it's like, well, the evil imperial commissar goes to the the plucky island outpost and tells them they must submit. And there's this like back and forth about like, why do you bring this pain upon us? And it's ah, because we are the strong, and the strong do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. It's like, wow, it's it's like fucking Darth Vader like rolled up here like try to be a little bit more credible with your dialogue and it's like no that that established for the entirety of western civilization the the archetype of the like the evil imperial ultimatum like that that was not a thing that necessarily existed prior to that point so, like, yeah, it's like you are living inside of a fantasy novel because if you're trying to write a fantasy novel, you draw upon, you know, the these halcyon days of Western culture where you you actually do have, like, it, it's a, this is even like a, a Twitter trope where you just t- take, like, a random section of the map and you're like, oh, yeah, the barren steppes. I bet that's where the barbarians live, right? Because you were too lazy to draw in any features in the steppe, right? It's like, no, that's actually where the Mongols come from. There's actually a thing there. Sometimes the 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 reality establishes the existence of the fantastical. You know, the uh, there's the Greek culture was very compressed. Every wide. Uh, Every letter in the word will change the meaning. That's what uh, one professor that I went to to proofread my history of ancient boxing uh, uh, to check my translations. He he made sure he told me that. But their their most important word, eriti, uh, it will get translated as honor. I mean, that's like one thirty seventh of the meaning of the word. I mean, this that. There, one academic wrote a 220-page book trying to explain it and kind of failed. Um, you know, just that was a huge concept. So, so it's pretty deep. The uh, Thucydides and Xenophon was the guy that took over finishing the history, and Xenophon adopted was adopted into the 
into the Lacadamians. So they didn't call themselves the Spartans. Uh, they call themselves the men of the silent land and everybody. Other people sometimes called them Spartans after their capital city. So Spartan would mean rope maker. Sparta was rope and Lacadamian was land of the silent men. Uh, they, uh, uh, just within one city, like the, the, the number of things that were sacred to the Spartans, just the number of gods and the fact that these gods were like syncretized amalgamations of like earlier cults from different cultures that they conquered and everything. It's really a lot more complex than what we have going on now. Uh, so a bunch of that stuff is buried underneath the surface of the narrative. And it's one reason why it's pretty important to read the speeches, even though Thucydides points out that, you know, these aren't exactly the words, but I'm trying to relate the substance of why these people were claiming to do this and why they were claiming to do that. And then there's cute little details about the, the guys swimming underwater out to this besieged island with uh, lumps of poppy seeds uh, slathered in honey as like emergency rations um, so you have a lot of these little details the, the two things that they were really big on uh, the Athenians uh, and the, the Spartans to a lesser degree but they uh, they both uh, they both did it that the uh, putting to the sword the, the first time I found the term uh, the older societies like the Sumerians would talk about we went to the ocean and we washed our swords in the sea after it was over, and they meant like big knives at that period. Uh, the, the, you're having a hard time making anything bigger than a bowie knife. It's not going to break on you. The Spartan swords, uh, most of the Greek swords were relatively small. I think the biggest one was the Xiphos or the Reaper, which would look like a modern cold steel double-edged machete. Uh, they were mostly used for slaughter, for executing people. Uh, the Hoplite's main weapon was the Dory, which was a 7 to 11 foot spear that would have a counterweight on it and a spike on the bottom for dispatching guys that were underfoot. Uh, but the main, and that wasn't the main weapon. The main weapon was really the aspis, the shield. They had, the, they had gotten rid of the hop one like a hundred years earlier, which is what they were named after the hop one, which was like an oblong shield. Uh, so the main weapons really the aspis, the, uh, you know, this 20 pound shield and then the spear, the, the dory, uh, and their secondary weapon is the uh, is these various types of swords. They had like eight different types of swords, and the most popular one was the Makara, which just means cleaver. And they basically used them for slaughtering uh, prisoners. And that was the penalty. Uh, and the Athenians inflicted on in at least five small nations where they slaughtered every man, and then they sold every woman and child as slaves. And they actually committed these little genocides uh, whenever it was practical. Uh, and that was uh, just that, you know, putting to the sword, uh, you know, means something more than like slaughtering them all in battle. That was something you did with a spear and you knocked their brains out with a shield and hit them with a spike on the base of the, sh on the, base of the spear. But putting people to the sword was, you know, it's like lining them up against the wall and cutting them down with a submachine gun and, you know, some bad World War II movie. So, uh it's something, and the most common factor internally with all the Greek states, except for the two major players, was uh, traitors. Uh, I mean, most of these sieges and battles, they were all won, or they were ignited because there was an internal party that was trying to bring in an outside ethnic enemy 
to slaughter their internal rivals. It was like this invitation. Uh, so they were, they were behaving very third world. They, the Greeks were behaving, most of the Greek city-states were behaving very, very much like uh, uh, like Cold, Cold War era third world countries, inviting in a larger, more powerful company, country to like slaughter their enemies. Uh, so, uh, you know, may, maybe globalism, you know, could be a parallel if we're looking at, you know, modern parallels, you know, with like an American culture war or something. I don't know. Uh, they might be pushing it, but th- it was nasty. And th- the thing is, their term for it gets translated as games. They uh, trans uh, modern translators translate Minera, which is the Latin rights due to dead, you know, with the gladiatorial games as games. They weren't games. And they translate agons. Uh, agon, the, the Greek term for sports, it's alive in our term agony. You know, the, the suffering of the prize seeker, the contestant. Uh, so even the Greek idea of athletics was almost alien to ours. Uh, playing ball to them that was something you did with your mom and your sister you know they were looking almost all of our modern sports and just say look at these sissy pursuits these guys should be beating the hell out of each other uh so yeah the culture was it's almost like a compressed version of our western culture um you know that that gets more violent as you compress it well how did maybe this is an interesting question what hank was saying that this uh, this becomes like the basis for much of the Western canon. How did the Western canon evolve into the liberal revisionist view where Athens was the un- unjustly defeated um, uh, arbiter of what would become Western values by the tyrannical and backwards monarchy from down south? Whereas most of Western canon, despite that, kind of narrative continues to and has for a long time always supported the side of the underdog uh sort of the plucky underdog and you can see that particularly in like um 19th and 20th century western culture american culture uh, you know someone mentioned star wars earlier i think that's a good encapsulation of it where uh <laughs> you, you don't really ever look critically at who the, the the smaller people are, as long as they're defeating the bigger people, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, in this the, case, the whole English like, national self-image. Think yeah, of that. like what? in this case, the Spartans <laughs> were the little people, were like this sleepy little state that had to muster all of its will to rebel and fight against this, you know, sort of expansive tyrannical um, uh, imprinting power up north. And eventually defeated them after you know grueling several decades. But on top of that, we're supposed to look at like all of these long, obnoxious diatribes from Pericles as the basis of Western culture. It mean it, there is like this inherent contradiction in the historiography, and I think the 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 imprint that Thucydides had on on the Western canon. Like in the one hand. We're supposed to support the underdog typically, but on the other hand, in this particular case, the underdog was in the wrong, and the the uh, the, the tolerant, predominantly gay, uh, uh, cultural mecca up north was actually the good guy for whatever reason. 
What's interesting, well, the term canon, well, that comes from the ancient Greek, and it comes from the standards of artistic proportion. And I think maybe the word might be the artist, that the proportions were based on his proportions. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's leaving me. But the, uh, the, so the idea of a canon is basically your standards of proportion. You know, was the at least the ancient Greek idea of the canon, and there's been uh, a long, you know, it's been a two thousand year long effort to kind of keep that alive. But basically, with uh, the French Revolution, that pretty much goes out the window, and there's an attempt to corrupt and flip everything on its head for anything that could be shaped as being for the greater good, and uh, you know, I think it's as simple as just getting hung up on who the democracy was. And if you think about what the, de uh, the mind that's behind a democracy, it's the puppeteer's mind. It's the puppet master's mind. It's, you know, the mind of Oz. It's the guy that's pulling the levers behind the scenes, you know, making the common people think that, you know, they're doing this for themselves when they're just doing it for him. And Thucydides is clear on that, that this is a battle of the interest of the, of the wealthiest people. Uh, uh, the uh, in a lot of ways, Athens was more oligarchical than Sparta was. Sparta still had two kings, and that's a check on the oligarchy. And the oligarchy was rotational. The ephors would be rotated in and out. And actually, the combative population of uh, one reason why the Spartans were really reluctant to go into combat was that there was only 10,000 Spartan similars. They only had like two regiments. They basically just had one division. Then they would have about 10,000 uh, uh, dwellers around, okay, uh, who were, uh, they, they were not the Simors. They were not the, the Knights of Sparta, uh, but they were just as effective in combat. So they basically, they've only got two field divisions that they can devote to any war. Uh, so there was a lot of logistical problems with basically having an army that was just an elite force. It's an awful lot to risk. And I, I think that kind of helped them maintain a higher level of decency. Towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, they became corrupted too. And they ended up, uh, you know, executing some people like Darius, Spearward of Rhodes was like a neutral. And uh, the Athenians called him towards the end of the war, traveling back and forth to a sacred contest. And they let him go because he was a famous guy and he was coming back from a sacred contest. The Spartans end up executing him. Uh, you know, and it shows you that they kind of like, in a lot of ways, took on the monstrous trappings of the Athenians by fighting them. It was very Nietzschean. And they became famously nasty when they ruled other people overseas, similar to what happened to the Japanese, which is another insular culture that was forced to fight by a maritime enemy that kept that wouldn't leave them alone. And then when they went to war, this very insular, devoted, fatalistic warrior mentality just went haywire when it was asked to govern non-warrior people. And you ended up with a lot of atrocities. And, and the Spartans weren't guilty of like mass atrocities, but their commanders individually would like all melt down when they became foreign governors. Because they just, they, they had too pure of a warrior mentality to, to, to manage uh, a population of people. Uh, I really think it goes back to the French Revolution. I, I think that is this type of uh, twisting, uh, you know, the meaning of good. What Thucydides was talking about, the first casualty was the meaning of words. 
and the greatest casualty was the meaning of words. Uh, I think that's what comes from him and echoes down to us really through our own revolutionary period with the French Revolution and, you know, onward into uh, all the ideological struggles of the 20th century that uh, the biggest casualty was just the meaning of our words. So uh, Thucydides basically predicts for us how our canon, which should be a standard of proportions, gets corrupted, you know, in the struggle for power that we had, you know, that we end up having uh, again, and it, it gets twisted again. Well, speaking of words, why don't you tell us about your upcoming book, and uh, we're going to publish an excerpt of it on The American Sun. Oh, well, that's, uh, uh, that's coming out on Tuesday. Uh, barbarism versus civilization got banned in the womb by Amazon. And during this, <laughs> well, dude, during... I'll, I'll, having edited the excerpt, uh, I think uh, maybe you uh, you redact some of the uh, the various n bombs and uh, and safety <laughs> minds. Might, uh, might make it a little bit easier to get past the filters. I mean, we don't, frankly, we don't want to get banned from WordPress. So, uh, you know, you'll have to unbolderize that uh, if you decide, if you, the listener, decide to uh, look that up on the American Sun, which we encourage you to do, as well as buy the, uh, buy the book. Well, the deal I made with Miss Lockhart, since she basically volunteered along with about seven proofreaders to start proofreading and editing my stuff, she said we're up to 156 books in print and 37 of them are in process right now. Well, Barbarism versus Civilization is one of my four books that got banned by Amazon for whatever reasons, I don't know. And I, the deal I made with her is any book that of mine that gets banned by Amazon, it's her property. She can have it. She can do it on her, another platform and sell it and hopefully get some remuneration. The books that she publishes for me through Amazon uh, that don't get banned, uh, she'll those rights go to her and her family after I croak. So, so this is uh, uh, this is one of Lynn's books that's uh, a reissue of a book of mine that uh, that got banned. And I think 20 chapters of it is the research I did with interviewing people uh, about their experiences with outlaw biker groups, that, uh, uh, which was, I think, the subject of my last visit on your program, was, which was the Hells Angels. And uh, in fact, it, uh, or it was the program before that. So that's Barbarism versus Civilization. It's, uh, it'll be my only hardback masculinity book, and that's hers. So that'll go to her and her, her family uh, if you're nice enough to buy that. And uh, the book that she's publishing for me tomorrow called Apocalypse uh, was basically about my time undergoing the initial lockdown in Portland. Uh, when everything immediately became super gay. Um, and uh, that's, uh, uh, that's part of a series of books that over 50% of the content I will not publish ahead of time online. I used to publish a lot of stuff online ahead of time, but I don't want to get dragged away for being a, a traitor to the medias, uh, you know, over, you know, I don't know, uh, contradicting what... Uh, with some doctor that stands to make a lot of money off of a vaccine says. So, uh, you know, henceforth, like my current events books, most of them are, uh, they're just going right to book form. And she's trying to publish them a little bit more quickly, a little bit more quickly. But, you know, Barbarism versus Civilization was just an attempt to try to finish the incomplete argument between H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Robert E. Howard 
as to uh, what's superior, barbarism or civilization. And I'm trying to sort out where civilized people take credit for something like honor as being a civilized value when it is absolutely not a civilized value and is a barbarian value that was such a good value that it's retained in a civilized setting for a very long period of time until it finally, in an age such as ours, such as ours, becomes uh, anathema to the cultural values. Honor is now a bad thing. Um, and any discussion of honor is going to put it in, in the sphere of toxic masculinity, which just shows that we're in a cultural end time, that it's an end of empire phase. Uh, so, and that's all. It was, just, and most of my readers hated this concept and were debating me and and just telling me that I was a jerk and I was losing Facebook likes and I was losing Jack Donovan, you know, supporters because I was supporting barbarism values over uh, uh, over civilized values, if you can believe that. But I wasn't. I, I was basically just trying to sort out which of our high values came from a barbaric lifestyle and survived civilization and which of our values came purely from the process of civilization. And it was just an attempt for me to try to sort that out. And I lost a whole lot of readers <laughs> over that. <laughs> so, so I hope somebody buys it and they like it. And, uh, it looks like Lynn did a very nice job on the, uh, on the book. I'm proud to have a hardback book out there. 